This week on Geek Explained, to celebrate the release of Final Fantasy VII Remake, we're counting down my favorite Final Fantasy games of all time. Welcome back to Geeksplained. I'm your host, Eric Azana, and today's episode is all about Final Fantasy, the video game series that feels like it's been going on since the dawn of time. And it's a pretty good time to be a Final Fantasy fan, especially because this Friday, as of this recording, Final Fantasy VII Remake is releasing to the world. Amidst all of the terrible stuff that's going on around the world, there is one shining beacon of hope, and that is Final Fantasy VII Remake. So, to celebrate that, we're going to be counting down my favorite Final Fantasy games. We also have this week's weekly review, which kicks off Season 2 of Harley Quinn, and of course, this week's comics callback. But before we get into all of that, let's check in with this week's news. Alright guys and dolls, I'm not going to lie to you, there's not a whole lot of news this week. There's only two pieces of news throughout our four categories, film, TV, comics, and miscellaneous, but they're, they're news that I'm pretty excited about. So kicking off with TV news, our one piece of TV news this week is uh, the new Superman and Lois show that's coming to the CW, hopefully, fingers crossed, this fall, has officially cast its Lana Lang. Uh, actress Emmanuel Treek. I probably mispronounced that and I apologize um, is going to be joining the cast as Lana Lang uh, the character breakdown says that she's essentially like the I guess the owner or the director of the Smallville Bank so I don't know I mean it did say something about uh, she seems like she's a little bitter because all of her friends moved away from Smallville and she stayed so I'm interested I'm not super familiar with her as an actress but just looking up her stuff she was on a show called The Passage and she also was on Entourage so those of you who uh, are Entourage fans may recognize that actress's name so we'll see I'm always excited I'm just glad that we're getting more news about that show because that is my most hyped CW show that is still in development right now. So that is it for TV news. Now we move on to film news. And there has been a lot of debate, a lot of questions about whether or not Black Widow will be releasing uh, directly to VOD or whether it will hold steadfast and go to theaters at some point. It was supposed to release next month, though we all know that that's now not going to happen. Um, and they've been kind of playing fast and loose with whether they were going to release it on VOD or not. But they have finally made a decision, and that is that it will be staying in theaters, and it has been given a new release date, along with the entire slate for Phase 4 when it comes to their films. So I'm going to read these off. The, 
I think this is pretty exciting. We're getting a lot, a lot more than I think we were expecting when it comes to Phase 4. So um, starting off, Black Widow will be now uh, releasing later this year on November 6th. 2020 so it'll be looking for a more fall slash winter release which i think works with like the spy aspect um james bond i think really kind of works in that area so if this is supposed to be as a darker kind of spy story i think releasing it around that time works uh next up we have the eternals which is now releasing on february 12th 2021 i i'm still i'm not hyped about the eternals um i just i'm not super interested so i hope that they change my mind uh but we'll see. Uh, next up after that, we have Shang-Chi and the Ten Rings, which is releasing on May... Or The Legend of the Ten Rings, sorry. Uh, which is releasing on May 7th, 2021. And following that, we will be having Spider-Man 3, whatever they end up naming that, on July 16th of 2021. And then rounding out 2021 will be Doctor Strange and the Multiverse of Madness, releasing one year from the release of Black Widow on November 5th, 2021. So we're getting four films next year. Um, God willing, I guess. We'll see if that happens. But um, that's pretty interesting. And then into 2022, we're getting three more films. Kicking us off with Thor, Love, and Thunder, which will be releasing on February 18th, 2022. I think that's great having it release in kind of that uh, Valentine's Day um, space with the whole Love and Thunder theme. Then we have Black Panther 2 officially getting its release date on May 6th, 2022. And then the big announcement for this rollout of news, I guess, is that Captain Marvel 2 finally has a release date coming out on July 8th, 2022. So that's one, two, three, four, five, six, eight films that we're getting out of Phase 4, not to mention all of the uh, Disney Plus shows that we're going to be getting Uh WandaVision, Falcon and the Winter Soldier, Loki, possibly other other um, shows that could be leading into Captain Marvel. There's been talk of like a secret invasion show of um, Young Avengers. So all of this stuff is coming. I'm really excited about it. And I'm glad that even though it is getting pushed back, we do know that it's still coming. And... I think kind of an unintended side effect of that is that now we get a little bit more time to breathe between um, Phase 3 and Phase 4. Because it kind of felt like releasing Black Widow um, so early. And I granted, it's still this year. But like releasing it so early after the release of um, Infinity War and Endgame um, where... Natasha dies feel, feels weird and felt like kind of... Like, it, I don't know, cancels out the sacrifice made in Endgame. But I'm glad that we're getting time, they're pushing it out, and now we can really enjoy it when it, hopefully, fingers crossed, drops. So that is it for this week's news, which is going to take us on into our main course of this episode. The entree, if you will, which is counting down my favorite Final Fantasy games.
So I have been a big fan of Final Fantasy for a very long time. In my kind of in my experience when I think of RPG, especially like fantasy RPG, um, Final Fantasy always comes to mind. It's kind of the standard bearer. It's the one that I kind of put other RPGs up against to see like where they compare and contrast. And so I have had a deep-seated love for the series for a very long time. And when I heard that they were going to be remaking from from the ground up one of the best titles of the entire series, Final Fantasy VII, it got me thinking about the series as a whole and really what my experience was with that series. And so in this episode, I'm going to be counting down my favorite Final Fantasy games. Um, I've got my kind of top five, the five that I always can really look back on and really enjoy when it comes to gameplay, when it comes to story, characters, all that. And so we're going to be talking about that today. Uh, there will be light spoilers. I'm going to try to keep it somewhat spoiler-free, especially for those of you who haven't played all of these games. Um, Final Fantasy, like I said, has been going on for a very long time, so it's inevitable that you won't have played all of the Final Fantasy games. I know I haven't played all of them, but I'm pretty excited to talk about the ones that I have played. And just a quick disclaimer before we jump into the list. Um, this is my personal list. This is uh, completely subjective. This is from my experience of playing these games. And so if your list differs, feel free to let me know. Feel free to uh, reach out on social media at Pod, Instagram or Twitter, or through email, geeksplained at gmail.com. And we can compare. We can compare lists. We can talk about our experiences. I love having those conversations with you guys. I've been having a lot of Final Fantasy-related discussions recently, and so I'm just excited to talk about it. So let's go ahead and dive on in. Um, at the number five spot for me, for my personal favorite Final Fantasy games, we have Final Fantasy VII Crisis Core. Um, I know it's a spinoff, but I love this game. And the reason that it ranks so low on this list is because it is a spinoff. It's not like a core Final Fantasy game. But for me, I just, I love this thing, man. It's directed by Hajime Tabata, who is also the director of Final Fantasy XV. Uh, it was released on the PSP, y'all remember the PSP, uh, in Japan on September 13th of 2007, and in North America on March 24th, 2008. It is an action roleplay game, so it's different from the classic Final Fantasy where it's very much a turn-based battle system, there's an overworld and all that with the Crisis Core Crisis Core game. Um, it was kind of the first one that really turned into a fully um, I, I guess you can say with exceptions um, fully real-time battle system where you're just running around you're hacking and slashing throwing magic here and there and you're just having a grand old time and what this game does for me and how it kind of differentiates itself from the other games on this list is that it's a prequel 
It is a prequel to Final Fantasy VII, and it stars our boy, Zack Fair, who is my favorite character in the entire series. Not just Final Fantasy VII, the entire Final Fantasy series. Zack Fair is the best character in my view, and so, of course, a game starring him has to be on this list. Um, And he really is at the heart of not just this game, but also... In Final Fantasy VII as a whole, um, his his um, heroic outlook on things, his uh, example is what Cloud not only kind of co-ops for most of uh, Final Fantasy VII, but also what inspires him after that as well. Because Zack Fair is your classic like dashing protagonist like he's a guy who's starts the game you know fairly immature he's all about you know being a squat champion and like having a fun time while doing his soldier duties but over the course of the game you get to see him really mature as a character and as a person and that comes down to um his relationship with his mentor at the start of the game angeal now angeal is that classic um if zach fair is like robin or nightwing angel is batman he's the mentor character who originally at the start of this game has the buster sword that eventually makes its way to cloud and he is he's got his whole backstory that is super um intricately tied into the lore and he stands as kind of the example for zach fair to strive towards but he also has someone else to strive towards and that's sephiroth sephiroth of course the main villain of final fantasy 7 and we will talk about him in depth later on but here he really kind of represents the uh the rival character in classic like anime and storytelling where he is he's the uh he's the gary oak to your ash ketchum and he kind of presents this ideal of what soldier is supposed to be and zach is kind of chasing him throughout this game of him trying to live up to sephiroth's uh example and to hopefully match him one day but Sephiroth, even though he is the villain of Final Fantasy VII, is not the villain of this game. The true villains of this game are kind of separated. Um, first of, first and foremost, of course, it's Shinra. Shinra is the terrible organization, the corporation that is really, I guess, technically the overarching villain of both this game as well as some of its spinoffs or, or some of uh, Final Fantasy VII's spinoffs. But the big boss for this game and a character who was original to this game and was kind of literally like retconned into the story um is genesis and genesis is like sephiroth on steroids like if sephiroth had this weird like vanity and was obsessed with this and it was obsessed with a play like that's genesis who is super vain super entitled and is so obsessed with this uh play called loveless that he will like quote it and he'll like do big reaches to try and like tie in events of his life to the play and genesis is a really cool character he's got a great design and he has all the same kind of abilities as sephiroth has he even has his own one-winged uh black wing and it's really cool watching zach kind of interact with all these characters because in that realm of like superpowered gen uh 
Genova Cell soldiers, Zach's like the normal guy. Like he's the guy who's just like, I'm going to get through this with grit and determination. And that really makes him even more endearing. You also get to see, you know, events that happen that are only referenced in the original Final Fantasy VII. Like, you get to see the end of the Shinra Wutai War. You get to meet characters before they've really grown into who they are in Final Fantasy VII. Like Yuffie, like Aerith. All of these characters who you know what's going to happen to them and what's going to transpire in their lives and that getting them in kind of their formative years through the eyes and perspective of Zack is really, really cool. And you also, of course, because they're so intricately like woven together, uh, you get Zack and Cloud. You get their interactions together, how Cloud looks up to Zack and how Zack really kind of befriends this normal guy who is just trying to do his best because he relates to that. Uh, another big thing that I really like about this, I am a sucker for tragic storytelling. Because if you have played Final Fantasy VII, you know what happens to Zack. You know how um, his fate ultimately influences the entire story. His The ending of this game, his, um, his stand against Shinra soldiers... Uh, right on the outskirts of Midgar is what kicks off the events of the entire Final Fantasy VII saga. Like, it's really a game to, um, I guess, while it could be your entry point, also enriches the world in itself. Uh, Pros for this game, uh, the characters. Characters are fantastic. I already mentioned Zack, Angel, Genesis, Sephiroth, uh, but we get insight onto other characters side characters we get a little bit more depth with hojo as well and uh some scientists who you may not have heard about before but who have pretty uh heavy implications onto the overall story also how genesis kind of factors into the story is really interesting and the idea that while all of the stuff in Final Fantasy VII was getting ready to happen, Genesis was kind of just there in the background as this, like, haunting, like, uh, specter, really kind of pulling strings and really, like, messing with people. So it was really cool. Um, the story is fun. It's heavily based in the lore, so you get a lot of... I'm I'm a huge lore hunter. I love looking through backstory and world building. That's why it's so important to me. Um, and this does it in spades. You get to see um, so much of Final Fantasy VII's world through the eyes of someone who's a little bit, I would say, more optimistic than Cloud and the other main characters of the original Final Fantasy VII because they are, in essence, they are resistance fighters. They are technically terrorists. Um, And so there's a lot of doom and gloom when it comes to that world, especially through the eyes of those characters that make up Avalanche. But through Zack's eyes, he's just a guy doing a job. And so he has time to stop and smell the roses. He has time to engage in squat competitions. He has time to fall in love. And so it's a really well-rounded story that is a blast from start to finish. And also in that this game is really... um, the most pared down simplistic version of Final Fantasy. It's very accessible in that way, in that a lot of times people look at Final Fantasy and they're like, ah, I don't know about it because it's so 
dense and it's so hardcore and a lot of fans of those games are very um very in the weeds and that includes myself like i can rattle off different factoids about all the different worlds that comprise the final fantasy saga and so that can be scary for a new gamer but this game is very accessible it allows you to jump in in a story that if you have played Final Fantasy VII, you kind of know the ending, but you are still able to be surprised. And if you don't know the story of Final Fantasy VII, you get to discover it through this game. It's really fun, and I really enjoy it. Cons, there are some negatives, though. However, um, there are are hardware limitations this game came out on the psp and myself included there were so many people who were like why isn't this on the ps2 why isn't this on the playstation 3 um a quick remaster would fix that and we could have it but i kind of understand uh they were basically working with what they had and the psp is in no in no uncertain terms like a a switch capable or even like a nintendo ds capable console there's a reason that it had such a short shelf life and so when it comes to like the graphics the game mechanics they do suffer because of that uh i did talk about the story another negative that is for this game is that um we do get especially if you've played final fantasy 7 there is a lot of ground that gets retread in this game and in that they're also like a lot of retcons that happen over the course of this game there's certain characters that interact there are certain um i guess fixes or retcons that happen to establish scenes in the lore so in that way it can be a little contradictory to the original story at times i don't know if that's going to affect the story for the final fantasy 7 remake or not but you never know and finally for uh for cons in what I said in the pros about uh, the simplicity of this Final Fantasy, it also can be seen as a negative because making a game this simple, um, even though that doesn't mean that it's not difficult because it is, um, it really either A, doesn't prepare you for what Final Fantasy is just on a base level, so I wouldn't recommend this as your first Final Fantasy game, Um and it also, you know, it takes away a lot of things that make Final Fantasy Final Fantasy. Like turn-based up until, you know, 13 maybe, uh, was really about the turn-based uh, battle dynamic. And this one introduces uh, the slots. Uh, it introduces, it strips away a lot of the cores of what make Final Fantasy not enjoyable i mean yes obviously obviously enjoyable but what really uh puts that unique stamp on a final fantasy so it's not technically your classic style of a final fantasy game and for those of you who are you know final fantasy purists you may be a little put off by the battle system and by the game as a whole um unfortunately when it comes to playing this game nowadays uh, it's kind of hard to get your hands on because it really was only released on the PSP. There hasn't been a PlayStation remaster, which is an absolute crime. They need to either remaster this or remake it, especially with Final Fantasy Remake or Final Fantasy VII Remake. They could totally remake this. Um, but 
if you do have a PSP somehow, and if you are able to get your hands on it, it's absolutely a game worth playing, and it's one of my favorites of all time. So that is my number five. At my number four slot, um, this might be a little controversial, but um, it's Final Fantasy XV. This is the most recent Final Fantasy that has been released. Uh, it was directed by Hajime Tabata, who, like I said, uh, directed Crisis Core, which is a great through line there. It was released on the PlayStation 4, Xbox One, uh, with later on uh, releases for PC and the Google Stadia, and was released worldwide on November 29th, 2016. Uh, this game is another action roleplay game, so this really kind of represents the new normal. Uh, kind of like what the standard is going to be for Final Fantasy games going forward. It takes a lot of cues when it comes to its um, its battle mechanics as well as its overall gameplay from the Kingdom Hearts series. And you can definitely see the influence because they were working on this alongside their development of uh, Kingdom Hearts 3. So this game really kind of stands alone when you look at other Final Fantasy games. There really isn't another Final Fantasy game that you can compare it to. Um, and that is kind of because it's an open world game. This is the first uh, fully fledged open world Final Fantasy game. And in that way, it's pretty innovative. It's something that we really hadn't experienced before. And so there was a lot of new ground that could be broken with it. And that ground gets to be broken with four of the most likable characters in the entire series. Our main heroes are Noctis, who is the prince of the land, with his pals uh, Gladiolus, Ignis, and Prompto. Uh, these guys together are amazing. I remember watching trailers for this game, and there was a certain trailer that used uh, Stand By Me by Florence and the Machine. And when I heard that song, and I saw cutscenes of these four knuckleheads working together, I was immediately hooked. Um, the story really does center around these four, their relationships with each other, and you spend the entire game with them. You really get to see what makes them tick, how they relate to each other, and even though throughout the game there are moments where one of them will go away for a brief time, they are missed. There isn't a point where you're like, oh, I forgot you were gone, because each of them serves a different purpose. Noctis is our point of view character. He's kind of the all-around magic and physical user. Gladio has this giant broadsword, and he is your tank. Ignis not only is your kind of your uh, magic support but he also cooks he makes your status boosting meals and he gives you tidbits he gives you info and then prompto is your sharpshooter he is your distance fighter he's the one who i guess technically in like old school final fantasy terms he could be considered the thief but he runs around he has fast-paced action and he's always there to support everybody and so you get all of these characters who fulfill these roles both in a Final Fantasy game and also in a group of friends. And their rea their reactions to each other, their relationships are very, um, I think, very realistic, very pure. And I loved getting to experience their, um, their teamwork and their friendship. And they go up against the big, uh, the big villain, 
and maybe this might be a little bit of a spoiler, like I said, it's light spoilers, um, but it's Arden. Arden is a super interesting villain. Um, I wouldn't say he's the best Final Fantasy villain. We'll get to that later. But he is a great villain to stack up against our heroes, especially when you find out how he ties into the lore of the land, how he affects and has affected current and past events in the kingdoms of that land. And he's a really interesting character who pops up here and there throughout the story. Uh, what this game does so well, I think, is blending fantasy and modernism like they they drive around in cars here you get to drive around in a car that sometimes can become a plane and sometimes can become a boat depending on what dlc you've purchased and where you are in the story um there are sprawling cities and countrysides you know there's little podunk towns with you know garages um there's giant castles and cities there's a venice like uh, map that I absolutely love and I wish I got to spend more time with you know it, there's phones in this so it's really interesting how they evolve Final Fantasy throughout the years and this is a great example of a modern Final Fantasy game when it comes to pros for this game the main characters really do it for me like I said before uh, Noctis Gladio Ignis and Prompto really are the best uh, the best group in, I would say, years when it comes to Final Fantasy games. Their interactions with each other, their, their interactions with the world, their interactions with the story are really, really cool. I love the open world as well, getting to take those four characters all around this huge map. It is gigantic. And fast traveling really isn't an option early in the game. So you have, you basically don't have a choice but to sit back and really enjoy the game as a whole, which I, I like. I, I'm of the, um, I'm of the mindset that I enjoy, uh, exploring open worlds before being able to you know quote-unquote fast travel and eventually you do get the chance to fast travel just like in like a uh, red dead redemption 2 but for me getting to do that getting to skip all of the beautiful world building that they've done in this game it's it's almost not worth it so i really enjoy that i also like that they focus on the gameplay here um one of the big uh, criticisms, I think, for Final Fantasy XIII and its assorted sequels and spinoffs uh, was that the gameplay was really lacking and it was more like running down a hallway just to get to the next cutscene. Um, that game is not on this list, just as a spoiler, sorry for those of you who love Final Fantasy XIII, but this game really has a fantastic battle system, putting an emphasis not just on a real-time action battle system but also in how your four characters interact with you because as you're running around as noctis prompto ignis and gladio are engaging in these battles with you if they see that you're hurting they will heal you if they find an item they'll use it if they have you know tips or a special move they want to pull off they'll run to you to be like hey let's do this and it's so engaging and it's so fun that even the grind for leveling up is a fun time, which I didn't think was possible, especially with Final Fantasy games. And you have such a good time 
uh, running around using all of your different abilities, whether it be your warps, which I love. It's always so satisfying to sneak up on a group of enemies and you warp in and you take the first one down. Um, before you engage in a larger battle, whether it's your magic, which can, which does, you know, like any Final Fantasy, starts off fairly weak but grows as time passes, and then the Arbiter system, where you get to use weapons from King's past throughout your bloodline, and it's so fun. The amount of, uh, I think, choice and the freedom to choose how you want to approach battles is really exciting. And overall, the huge rehaul that the the huge um overhaul that they did for this system really shows. I also love the DLC. We got um three, technically four, um DLC chapters for this game, episode Gladio, episode Prompto, episode Ignis, and then later episode Arden. Um, episode Arden, I think is, um, it has a lot of problems, but I loved episode Gladio, episode Ignis, and episode Prompto. Episode Gladio is probably the weakest of the three, because like I said, during this game, over the course of the story, um, members of your party will kind of go off on their own for a little bit. But getting to play through them as those characters, playing as Gladio and feeling the power of his broadsword swings, playing as Ignis and getting to work on not only your magic use, but also with your knives and your spear, really, really cool. And then Prompto, who I think is probably the most um, expansive when it comes to his episode, you run the gamut with this character, with your gunplay, with your sneaking and stealth. You get to ride on a snowmobile for parts of it. You're It's a great, great experience. And it enriches the story, because as soon as you play their episode that takes you all the way up to when they re-enter the story and you get to get their perspective on those situations and how it affects them going forward into that story. For cons, um, the story is very simple. Um, This could be a pro for some people, uh, but for your typical Final Fantasy fan who is used to lots of lore and lots of like heavy, heavy, um, dense story, you're not really going to find it here. There is lore to be found, but with this story, it's very straightforward. It's very point A to point B to point C. And that can be a little um, uninteresting. And I will admit that the story wasn't something that I was specifically um, into when it came to the um, the narrative aspect of it. I was much more interested in the small character interactions. Uh, the... Second half also is incredibly linear, which is unfortunate because it feels like the first half is so focused on showing you there's this huge open world to explore and it's so great that the second half is like, and now we're taking it away from you. So there is definitely a problem with that. And then also in the interest of fairness when it comes to pros and cons, the DLC is also a negative because um, the troubled... How do I say this? The troubled production of Final Fantasy XV is very well documented. The fact that there were supposed to be three more DLC chapters that just were canceled because of one reason or another um, kind of makes this game feel like it's incomplete. There are certain aspects of the story, certain aspects of the characters that 
in a typical Final Fantasy game up to this point, you would have to go on, you know, 12 different side quests to get that full story, which for someone who loves experiencing the full stories of characters that I care about, I'm totally fine with. And so having to not just during the um, base game, not just not knowing where those characters go when they go away, but also when you get the chance to find out, you have to pay for it, um, kind of feels like it's the worst part of the modern era of video games where, um, you know, in the 90s, early 2000s, a complete game today results in, you know, three quarters of a game and then an entire quarter of the game that's paid DLC. So that is an unfortunate negative on the game but as a whole it's still an incredible time i absolutely recommend playing it um it's available pretty much on every single console that you can think of now i would recommend the royal edition of the game that comes with all of the dlc all of the um, extra chapters the bonus uh missions the bonus weapons wardrobe all of it so i would definitely recommend the royal edition if you can get your hands on it and it is absolutely a game worth checking out at number three number three was a tough one um because i wanted to rank this higher but in the end i had to um place it here but it is final fantasy 7 Final Fantasy VII is an absolute classic and is part of the reason that this episode is happening in the first place. Um, it's directed by Yoshinori Kitase, who is one of the, I guess you could call him the founding father of the uh, Final Fantasy franchise. If he's not the guy responsible for the success of the franchise, he's definitely in the top four or five. Um, his catalog his um resume is enormous i was originally released on the playstation one and was the big debut for um for final fantasy on playstation up till then it had been pretty exclusively uh nintendo property so it jumping ship to the playstation was a huge deal and it was released on january 31st 1997 uh, this game is your classic Japanese role-playing game in that you are doing your turn-based combat, you've got your party, you've got your overworld, um, you've got your separate battle screens, the whole deal. And it arguably is the RPG of the 90s. When people think about video games from the 90s, a lot of people will think about... Um, the 90s Spider-Man game. A lot of people will think about... Um, for me, when I look back at that point, I think about Tekken. I think about, um, weirdly enough, uh, Iron Man and Exo Man of War. But for me, like, I really think of Final Fantasy. And this was kind of, you know, the game to set the bar in the 90s. And it really is Final Fantasy at its best. And it shows that in its extensive uh, release after the fact, you see spinoffs to this game, Crisis Core, uh, Last Order, uh, Dirge of Cerberus, and you get an entire, there's a subsection of Final Fantasy called Final Fantasy VII Universe. Like, it has its own entire world with spinoffs, with novels, with movies, with comics, the whole deal. And at its core, at all of it, at its Crisis Core. No, that was bad. Uh, <laughs> That was so bad. Um, at its core is our main character, which is Cloud Strife. Cloud Strife, one of the most recognizable video game characters of all time. 
Um, he is known for his blonde spiky hair, his uh, skinny demeanor, and his giant buster sword. And he is one of the most iconic video game protagonists of all time. Um, he is a tortured soul. He really was the first video game character um, that I can think of who is that like dark, brooding, mysterious protagonist. And he is probably one of the best versions of that. And that character has made so many resurgences in all different kinds of games. Uh, Kingdom Hearts being one of the big ones, but also he was he's one of the first Final Fantasy characters to make it onto Super Smash Brothers. So it's a big deal that he is um, he has had the success that he's had. But heroes really are defined by their villains, and Sephiroth is the main villain of Final Fantasy VII and is just as iconic as Cloud, if not more. Um, his long silver hair, his giant eight foot possibly longer Masamune sword is just instantly striking and he's like the Darth Vader of Final Fantasy he's silent he's imposing and he will f your shit up every single time you run into him he's an incredible character he's enigmatic he drives the story and is very compelling as a villain the game overall has a lot of environmental overtones um this was kind of following in the lead of its predecessor with kind of blending fantasy elements with modern sensibilities that i think would be i would say perfected in games like final fantasy uh 15 where they took a lot of the uh steampunk stuff from the prior title and really made it matter in this game when it comes to the narrative uh there's a big focus on um on saving the environment on gaia and the life stream and materia and how all of that kind of um is both a double-edged sword and is very complicated in both its um use within the main game as well as gameplay um and then this whole like anti-corporation narrative um, is huge. Shinra sucks. Shinra is comprised of mostly dicks, uh, with the exception of a couple Turks. And your whole goal as a member of Avalanche, begrudging or not, um, is to take them down and to lessen their hold on the world and on the life stream. So there's a lot of um, I guess you could call it eco-terrorism in the game where you're seeing the juxtaposition between um, nature and industrialization, which, you know, those are pretty big themes, especially nowadays. But uh, for me, when I was younger, when I first played this, I, you know, these were the first kind of times that I was really interacting with those ideas. So I absolutely look at this game as one of the formative games when it comes to me, not just uh, in my view as a uh, gamer, but also in my views in life. Uh, going into pros, the characters. The characters are fantastic. We already talked about Cloud. He's incredible. His journey of um, loss and self-discovery is one of the best in any Final Fantasy game. Likewise, the stories of Tifa, the stories of Aerith, of Barret, of even characters like... Um, I, I don't want to say this incorrectly. Kitschy? It's spelled Kate Sith, but I heard somewhere that it's like Kitschy is the way you pronounce it. 
um, to Kamari Ron, not Kamari Ronzo. What am I saying? Why did I say that? That's weird. Um, to Sid, to um, Vincent. Vincent is one of the most interesting characters. He got his own game, for God's sake. It was not a good game, but he got his own game. Like these characters in this game really are worth getting to know and exploring. You get to go through their side quests, and this did the side quests to learn more about their characters years before Mass Effect 2 would perfect that art. So building up your crew, finding characters like Vincent, like Yuffie, who is a fantastic character, and really learning about them, learning about their place in the world, and getting to make resolutions with their own battles with identity is really, really cool, and it's really engaging. The story itself is really great. It's dense, like your classic Final Fantasy, but it really does work in that way that you're trying to figure out, you know, who is Cloud? What is he to this world? And every single character in this story is trying to make that same uh, discovery, is trying to answer that same question. Uh, the big themes of loss, the big themes of identity, the big themes of what are you willing to sacrifice to better the world are really deep cuts and really, like, I think heavy themes for a game that a lot of people at the time were just kind of looking at as a kid's game. And with that, those themes are present through the characters, through the narrative, and resonate with gamers of any age. Of any age, you can have these feelings of loss. You can have these feelings of struggling with your identity. And that idea is so well utilized and well realized in this game that even if it is showing its age it still resonates today uh going into cons the game is showing its age which is why it's a perfect time for a remake we'll be talking about that in a second but the game itself is showing its age the horrendous horrendous blocky character uh character models that are used in the overworld as well as most of the like story-driven cutscenes with the exception of a few fmvs um it's just bad it's bad and that's something that the studio is really uh, mindful of when this game came out because the overworld models are so different from the character models in the battle screen and following this, no other Final Fantasy game utilized that style. When Final Fantasy VIII came out, the overworld models matched the in-battle models. And so, in that way, Final Fantasy VII is very much like a product of his time and is really time in a bottle. Because a lot of the stuff that happened in the game... and whether it comes to the story, whether it has to do with the development of the game, really were just for that game. Um, the game is also super challenging if you're a completionist. Um, I have this as a con because I do like to um, complete games as much, as best of my ability as possible, but if you were someone who was trying to get all of the materia and master all of that materia, get master materia for every single character in your uh, in your roster, not just your party, not just your three-person party, in your entire roster, um, 
it's too much it really it really is it's too much to ask because you have to go it's it's a process um i don't want to get into it because it's gonna it's gonna make me mad all over again but it is hard for me to recommend it if you're a completionist in the in the way that i am or even if you're a completionist uh more hardcore than i am because i will admit there are certain games like final fantasy 7 that i look at and i'm like i'm not gonna do it um there's also a lot of graphic inconsistent graphical inconsistencies we talked about the uh overworld not really matching the battle system um a lot of times there will be a lot of uh buggy shit that happens in this game and it's unfortunate because the game would be uh i would say not timeless but would age a lot better if the graphics were a bit more um polished polished is the word um with all that said though both pros and cons um taken into account this final fantasy really set the bar for future games in the franchise um i mentioned how after this game they never used those blocky graphics for the overworld again this game influenced every single final fantasy that came after it and influenced a lot of rpgs that came out of it as well so it's still worth your time um graphical inconsistencies aside if you're able to get past that the battle system is incredibly depth has some incredible depth the characters are fantastic the themes are great and the story is one of the best of final fantasy bar none uh, you can find the original version this it's basically kind of remastered on both uh switch as well as ps4 and xbox one you can find updated kind of remastered versions of the original and there's a little remake coming out, a little-known remake, you might not have heard of it, uh, coming out this Friday as of this recording, and I am stoked. I am so excited to play this again. It has been years since I played this game, and I cannot wait to jump back in with it. So that is uh, my number three favorite Final Fantasy. At number two, um, number two, regardless of placement on the list even though it is number two it's arguably the best final fantasy of all time and that is final fantasy 6 final fantasy 6 uh was directed by yoshinori kitase and hiroyuki ito and was originally released on the super nes on april 2nd 1994 i was two years old when this game came out and this game is your classic RPG in the same way that Final Fantasy VII is as well. Um, but this really was the first great Final Fantasy title. I know there's some people who love Final Fantasy V, love it with a passion. Um, I've also seen some love for Final Fantasy IV over the years. But Final Fantasy VI was really the first game in the series that was like, this is a masterpiece. This is a great, great game. Um, we talked about the blend of fantasy and modernism in later games in the series. This one is the perfect blend of Final Fantasy, um, of fantasy, excuse me, and steampunk. I am a huge sucker for steampunk, and this game blends both fantasy and steampunk elements together perfectly. Basic premise of this game. A thousand years ago, there was something that happened called the War of the Magi, where magic was 
more or less wiped from the world. So nowadays, there's a bigger um, focus on machines, on something called Magitech, um, as well as the Gestal Empire basically running things. And magic is just kind of like non-existent. Not many people believe that magic ever even existed in the first place. And so when magic slowly starts to creep back into the world, it's, um, it's a big deal. Uh, the big overarching, um, uh, what's it called, conflict, is between the Gestal Empire versus what's called the Returners. It's your classic Empire versus Rebels story. Um, but the big selling point for me on this game, the reason that if you've never played this, you absolutely should, is that you have, unlike any other Final Fantasy game that I've ever played, you have the freedom to choose who the main character is. Let me explain. Um, you start off through the perspective of Tara Branford, who is half Esper, which are the magical beings of this world. Um, and a lot of the plot is driven by events in her life, events that she kind of puts in emotion throughout the story. But she's not the main character. This is probably the best example of an ensemble cast that the, that the series has ever had, period, bar none. And it's shown in the fact that you get to choose who you bring with you at any given time when it comes to these missions. There's a cast of 14 characters. You have your choice of 14 separate and distinct characters to bring with you on any given mission. And there are multiple missions where you have to set up two to three different teams and you gotta work on their synergy. So you get to really decide who you bring on these story missions, who you want to be the main character, whether you want it to be Terra, whether you want it to be Locke, whether you want it to be Celeste, whether you want it to be Mog, or the correct answer and the only character who deserves to be the main character, Sabin Figaro. This man can suplex a train. And if you don't know what I'm talking about, play this game and you will find out. Sabin is the greatest character in the game and one of the greatest characters in the series. I could fill an entire episode just talking about Sabin, but he's amazing. His blitz ability is one of the best or might just be the best in the game. And like I said, he suplexes a train! Anyway, um, where was I? So you got me talking about Saban, and I just lost my train of thought. Um, but the main character roster is steep. You get to really choose these characters who really get to shine at all points in this ser in in this game it's fantastic but no one shines quite as bright as the main villain of the game Kefka Kefka is the greatest final fantasy villain in the entire series he is the joker but better and i know there are some people some joker loyalists who love the joker but Kefka's better just he just is he just is we can argue about it but you're gonna lose kefka is a character who is frightening 
he is entertaining he is flawed he is psychotic and he has clear motivations throughout the entire story um, he starts off as seemingly a henchman to the bigger villain, but over the course of the story, you start to figure out, and it becomes painfully clear that Kefka really is the star of the show, and he really is the big bad that everyone should be worrying about. Also, again, spoilers, um, Kefka wins. Kefka is one of the few villains in storytelling in general who wins against our heroes. Our heroes fail. And where they go from there is some of the most in interesting and engaging storytelling that Final Fantasy has ever done. Going into prose, the characters. I already stated the characters are amazing. Um, each one of them gets their time to shine. Each one of them is distinct and fulfills a different role in your party. Um, cl the class system kind of went away around this time, but they still do kind of fulfill those roles. Like uh, Locke is your thief archetype. Sabin is like a monk um, all over the place. Everyone fulfills a specific role, but characters get time to develop and they grow as people throughout this game. Celeste has one of the best arcs in the entire franchise. Her um, her backstory is that she was a general for the Empire who defected and is now helping the Returners. And she has basically lived her entire life believing that she is purely a weapon for the Empire. And there's this amazing scene, it's probably the most iconic scene in the game, at an opera where Celeste ponders the idea of being more than just a weapon having the ability to love and it's just it's an incredible arc Locke is very um is very intertwined in her arc but is also kind of the protective older brother of the group he immediately is drawn to Tara and wants to protect her and wants to help her out and really fulfills that older brother role but he he has a tragic backstory with when it comes to the empire um Tara is brainwashed at the beginning of the game and she has to deal with that every single character has dealt with loss in some way loss is a common theme in Final Fantasy but it is done at its best here. The story is fantastic. Every step of the way, it's engaging, it's fun, and you really get to the heart of these characters. The themes of loss really shines throughout, and each character deals with it in their own way. Halfway through the game, or I guess maybe two-thirds of the way through the game, an event happens where each one of the characters deals with loss differently, and you, as someone... As the player who have been with these characters and have, you know, undoubtedly to this point found your core character or your core characters, you get to decide, you know, would I react to loss this way? How do I feel about these characters, you know, dealing with their grief this way? It's it's so good. And all of it is really well um, supported by the music. The music is amazing. Nobuo Uematsu is just an incredible composer and he arguably did his best work on this game. Um, he took what 
the limitations were for the SNES at the time and made an absolute masterpiece when it comes to video game scores. Uh, the game is also incredibly accessible when it comes to the gameplay. It's your classic Final Fantasy. If you want a first Final Fantasy game, play Final Fantasy VI. It might, it might be setting the bar too high, but it's an incredible game to start off with. The characters are all the archetypes you will commonly see throughout the series. It's an incredible game to start off on. The story is accessible. It's not um, as simplistic as Final Fantasy XV, but it's not as incredibly dense as games like Final Fantasy VII. This game has a clear through line throughout, and even though there are tons of side quests, tons of characters, you get your time and all of them are easily explainable and easily accessible from a gameplay standpoint. And also, the game has replayability um, with the idea of exploring who you want your main character to be. You can play through it multiple times with focus on different characters they also at different points of the story will branch off into different scenarios which was a first in the final fantasy series at the time where you get to choose like okay so this happened this event happened now you have three scenarios with separate characters in each one who are going to you know react to it a certain way which scenario do you want to play and getting that choice getting that freedom of choice is so incredibly enriching as a as a gamer that it brings me back to it every single time now there are cons there are negatives even though it's one of the best of all time um there are negatives in that the game is buggy as hell it just is even the original version even some of the updated re-releases are still buggy as hell um, the game is definitely showing its age in that respect. It's, it's a 30 year old game at this point. So it's like, it's not like it's gonna, or it's almost 30, something like that. Um, it's not, you know, it's not a spring chicken anymore. And so a lot of the, uh, game mechanics are outdated in that respect. However, I don't think it's so much that, the game is outdated and that it's um it's aging it's aging like fine wine <laughs> but the game is definitely showing its age it's not the smoothest of transactions when it comes to playing the game from start to finish um the amount of characters while being a positive giving you tons of characters to choose from is also a negative in that the characters are not all created equal character development is not spread evenly across all of them characters um for example characters like um sabin tara uh Locke, and especially celeste get so much more character development than you would find with like uh say like um like a cyan cyan does have character but it's not as deep um characters like realm characters like especially strago uh sometimes come so far late into the game with what they have to offer to the party on a gameplay perspective that you don't really care about them and you don't utilize them a whole lot so in that respect um there's some issues when it comes to should there have been this many characters 
Um, there are also tons of missables in this game. Like I'm someone who likes to go and collect as much as I can. And there are certain characters, there are certain um, aspects of the game that you can miss without knowing and then it's gone forever. And it's, and it's unfortunate. All that being said, Final Fantasy VI still stands to this day being almost 30 years old as one of the greatest Final Fantasy games of all time, and if you have not played it, and even if you've never played a Final Fantasy game before, it is absolutely worth your time, and it is something that I always recommend to people. Uh, right now, you can get it on the uh, Wii Virtual Console. You can also get the uh, Game Boy Advance re-release, which is how I played it for the first time. Played it on my my good old Game Boy Advance way back in the day. And the best way to probably play it is on the uh, SNES Classic. Um, I would recommend because you've ha there have been ports of it that I don't think really uh, do any good for the game. Um, any of the PlayStation ports really aren't good for the game. They also did a re-release. Um, I mean, even the Game Boy Advance re-release is not the game at its like peak best um so if you have like an snes classic or you're able to do like a um a rom or a um what's it called um oh if you're able to um i can't think of the word um if you're if you're able to basically find your way into getting or emulating emulating that's the word uh get like an emulator that you can play the original snes version on that is the best version of the game yes it's outdated yes the color saturation is weird but in the world it works and some of the tweaks that they made for the game especially like the mobile release that they did where they completely redid the entire design um, don't do any service to the game and i definitely recommend trying to play the original version as much as possible so that is arguably i think the best final fantasy game but it's not my favorite because i have this and i've I have this belief with a lot of things that the first Final Fantasy game you play will always be your favorite because you'll always have that personal and nostalgic connection to it. And for me, my favorite Final Fantasy game of all time is Final Fantasy X. I know it's not the best. It's not the best game, but it is my favorite because it was my first Final Fantasy. It was the game that I, that introduced me to the franchise. It was directed by Yoshinori Kitase, Kitase once again. Uh, it was released on PlayStation 2 in Japan on July 19th, 2001, and in North America on December 17th of 2001. Uh, the game is still kind of your classic RPG, but updated the battle system a lot. Um, having kind of a more tactical battle system was pretty new for the franchise at the time, and the game is just, ugh, it's pure Final Fantasy. Pure Final Fantasy in its purest form, you know, blemishes and all, this game is incredible, and it is led by our two leads, Titus and Yuna. I know his name is Titus. I call him Titus, I have always called him Titus, and I will continue to call him Titus. So you can correct me as much as you want, I will still call him Titus. So Titus was a Blitzball player in Xanarkand, and his 
world was basically crushed by the monster Sin, who is the main antagonist of the game. And he wakes up seemingly thousands of years later in a world that is very different from the one that he left behind. And so he has to team up with Yuna and her assortment of protectors called Guardians to find a way to destroy Sin once and for all. All. Uh, Sin is an interesting character. It's not the best villain. We already talked about who the best villain is. It's Kafka. But Sin is a really interesting uh, villain in the way that he's not a physical um, villain in the way that like a Sephiroth is or a Kafka is. It's more of an idea. Sin is like this concept that you have to fight against. And in that way, it's kind of, um, it's very high concept fantasy with a lot of religious overtones. Religion was huge in this game, probably more so than any other Final Fantasy that I've ever played. And it was something that I even keyed into when I first played this game when I was a youngin. I was like, there's a lot of like God and religion and you know, this thing called sin coming and wiping away mankind. Like, there's a lot of that. So if that really grinds your gears, this might not be the Final Fantasy for you. But I love this game because not only is it a high-concept fantasy, but it's also, at its heart, a an incredibly cheesy love story. Uh, the love story between Titus and Yuna is one of my favorites of all time. Um, I can stack that up against any love story in any video game I've ever played and it will still rank high because um, it's just, it's fantastic. You get to see these two people who come from two completely different worlds coming together for a common cause and learning about each other and learning about how both different and similar they are. They're both people who are forced to fit a role under very um, uncertain times, and I love that. Going into pros, the characters. Characters are fantastic. When we're talking about the party system from uh, Final Fantasy VI, what Final Fantasy X did was it took all of that, um, all of that depth that Final Fantasy VI gave to its characters and halved the roster. So you are able to give more time to the characters and in that they're able to get more depth. Lulu, fantastic character. Waka, fantastic character. Kamari, he's fine. But Orin, Orin is one of my favorite characters in all of Final Fantasy and he is so fantastic. Um, but all of those characters serve a purpose, all of those characters have an arc, all of those characters really get to play their role to its fullest extent over the course of the story. The world is also visually interesting. This was the first Final Fantasy that took a lot of inspiration from... I would say more um, Pacific Islander themes. There's a lot of, um, I would say, as a Pacific Islander, I I related to a lot of the ideas in like Besaid with the um, with the Albed people. Like, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of that in these games. And if you are looking for a Final Fantasy game that isn't the typical, like, medieval Final Fantasy. Like, this is definitely worth a look because it took a different take on the world that hadn't been really looked at before. The story and the visuals are incredible. 
I was blown away by this. This was the first Final Fantasy game I played, and it was such a great entry point in the series because it has all of the stuff that you would come to know in Final Fantasy. Um, the visuals are also fantastic, pushing the pay the PlayStation 2 to the absolute limit. Um, the story was so good that it was the first game in the series to get a direct sequel. We got a Final Fantasy X2. The love for this series spawned its own universe of like novellas and spin-offs and all this great stuff that really can attest to the strength of the story and the strength of the concepts. The game also has a huge amount of customization. The Sphere Grid was a just a revelation when it came to its... Um, it's uh what's the word it's contribution to the to the game and i'm sad that we haven't seen really a uh, a return to that uh because your ability to customize your characters through the spear grid was unlike any kind of customization any kind of um rpg elements that we had seen before previously in the series and that really gave you a freedom to develop these characters how you wanted especially when it comes to titus who is once again, as the main character, kind of a more all-around character, you get you got to decide whether you wanted to make him a little bit more magic-based, whether you wanted to make him a little bit more phys physical-based. Like, it was so great to be able to play with that and manipulate the sphere grid to allow you to get to these characters to their core and how you wanted to play them. Cons. Um, cheesy dialogue. Cheesy dialogue, that is one of the first big cons that people talk about when it comes to this game. Um, the dialogue is probably one of the biggest uh, negatives that people will point out whenever they look at this game. Um, I kind of like it because I am a fan of cheesy dialogue sometimes. It, it can get pretty bad, but... The cheesy dialogue does uh, kind of hurt it, especially in that scene, the scene that everyone points to when they want to talk shit about this game, in that Titus is trying to make Yuna laugh. And, like, <laughs> the the forced laughter, the ha ha ha, it's, it's bad. I get it. It is. However... In the context of the story, if you understand why that scene was happening and why, you know, I'm just, I'm going to move on because we're in the negatives. I I am a diehard defender of this game, but um, the game also has a very linear story. If you are used to um, more open world uh, game gameplay and that's kind of what you like this will be culture shock for you because a lot almost all of the game is very linear when it comes to that um the customization of the freedom of choice was really put into character development more than the actual gameplay so that's definitely something that will uh, throw you off if you're expecting something like a final fantasy 15 also some of the mini games are really bad they're just really bad. The balance issues on them, they're not fun. Um, Blitzball, I will say, is the exception. I still enjoy Blitzball, but I can even I can see that it's not a perfect um, it's not a perfect game. It's not in any way uh, perfect 
especially when you look at the mini games that really do bring the game down and kind of slow things to a halt more so than mini games and other final fantasy games however this game is near and dear to my heart it's the final fantasies that started it all for me um and it's one of the games that actually does get the benefit of being a little bit older because currently the Final Fantasy X slash HD remaster is available if you want to check this game out on PlayStation 4, Xbox One, PC, and now even the Switch. And so you can experience both of those stories as well as the extra content that comes with them. Um, Final Fantasy X is a game that I always look fondly back on. It's been a couple years since I've played it, so I will probably go back and play it again now that all of this Final Fantasy craze is going on. But it's absolutely my favorite, and I can understand where that might not be the favorite of uh, somebody else. But that's kind of what I think is so beautiful about Final Fantasy as a series. There are games that are vastly different from each other, games that are very similar, and everyone has their favorite. And the um, the idea that so many people will have so many opinions about Final Fantasy just goes to show that it does have staying power. There's a reason that we're on Final Fantasy 15. We're the double digits when it comes to that series. There's a reason that we are going back and remaking one of the biggest games of all time from the ground up and releasing it here in 2020. It's a fantastic series. I can't wait for Final Fantasy 7 Remake. And I just freaking love Final Fantasy. I love that intro so much, so much. It is now time for the weekly review. This is the segment of our show where I review something weekly. And now, after our brief period of wildcard weekly reviews, we are back to a regular schedule. And that features Harley Quinn Season 2. Season 2 came out way sooner than I think anyone expected it to when uh, season one wrapped up and I for one am super excited to watch it and to get into it here. Uh, this is the season premiere. This week we'll be reviewing episode one of season two entitled New Gotham and this episode really deals with a lot of the aftermath of season one. Season one did not wait for you. Season one moved as quickly as I've ever seen a a TV show animated or otherwise move by at the beginning of the show you know Harley Quinn is dealing with a breakup from the Joker one of her many um, and is trying to figure out what to do with her life at the end of the season she's not only succeeded in seemingly killing the Joker but that 
whole action results in a gigantic earthquake that levels Gotham and seemingly also kills Batman. So we are officially in no man's land territory. One of my favorite Batman stories ever. If you haven't read it, go back. It is a treat. And we are here in this second season dealing with the aftermath of that. Um, the city has basically been carved up by villains who are taking advantage of the fact that the President of the United States has declared that Gotham is, just like in No Man's Land, basically not part of the U.S. anymore. It is its own sovereign entity, and thus they will be receiving no trade and no help from the U.S. government. So it's anarchy, uh, which really plays into Harley's whole perspective at the time. At the beginning of the episode, she's all about it. She's loving the anarchy. She's loving the uh, post-apocalyptic vibes. And this leads into her idea to kind of help the other, uh, as she refers to them, henges and goons, to rise up against their own supervillains and quote-unquote masters in the same way that she did. She has this great scene in a bar where she is kind of calling them to action to rise up against, like, the Riddler, Penguin, Two-Face, and all their uh, bosses to take their own names and become their own villains and this kind of kicks off a real um, domino effect which puts her in the crosshairs of Gotham's rogues who go by the Injustice League here I loved that um, and basically it puts her up against the five members of this new quote-unquote Injustice League that being Two-Face, Mr. Freeze, Penguin, Riddler, and my favorite Bane. Um, it's just, it's fantastic. Like getting their perspective on things is really cool. The fact that they kind of set it up like mob bosses and in a way it's set up as kind of a video game where Harley is now has five bosses that she has to deal with to liberate Gotham from its current state. And that kind of also rolls into this idea that I touched upon, uh, at the start of this where Batman's missing. He possibly died. We don't know what happened to him during the whole cataclysmic event. And so now, with the city kind of erupting into chaos, Jim Gordon is faced with this Batmanless Gotham. And even though Robin shows up in one scene, uh, this is, again, clearly the Damian Wayne Robin, who shows up in his father's bat suit, which is, like, you know, five times too big for him. And he's just... It's ridiculous. I love it. Uh, Jim Gordon is having to deal with the fact that he based so much of his life, both per both personally and professionally, on Batman. And so he has a great arc in this episode where he is kind of losing it. And he is coming to wit's end. His entire police department turns against him and joins the villains. He's run out of the GCPD. The bat signal breaks. And at the end of the episode, when things couldn't get any worse, his wife wants to divorce. So he is basically at rock bottom here. And it's going to be really cool to kind of see him... Uh, see where he goes across this story in the same way that Harley does. Uh, the big set piece for this episode was uh, the casino escape, where Harley Quinn, after 
you know, liberating the henches and goons and getting an invitation to join this new Injustice League to run Gotham. Uh, she is not about it. She doesn't want to join them. And so Mr. Freeze freezes her. And we find out that after that moment, two months pass. And in those two months, the five remaining rogues carve up the city. Each of them have their own section now, their own region of Gotham that they have completely outfitted. It's very much like uh, Arkham City, where every single section of Arkham City was run by a different villain. And so the aesthetics of that area would reflect that villain. And so I'm really excited about that idea going into the rest of the season. But... During this whole casino escape where uh, Harley Quinn has been frozen and her frozen body has been set on display in the Iceberg Lounge, uh, her team, which which was one of the best parts of the previous season, consisting of Dr. Psycho, uh, King Shark, Clayface, and Poison Ivy, as well as their... um, their old landlord, uh, rescue her. And during this rescue attempt, Harley Quinn not only bites off Penguin's nose, but also kills him. So that's one off the board with only four to go. And Harley Quinn, by the end of the episode, decides that she is going to take out the rest of the villains to run Gotham. And the episode ends with a little, you know, stinger to tease you for the rest of the season that bruce wayne is alive he was pulled from the rubble and he's been essentially in a coma for the past you know two month two three months and so we don't know what's going to happen there uh it's overall just a great great start for the season kicking off one of the one of the most interesting directions that the entire batman universe has taken in a while so i'm really stoked about it really looking forward to seeing where they go with each of these characters we've also heard different rumors from the creators of the show that we might be getting a harley quinn poison ivy romance uh that was the one knock that i have from this episode and that there was a distinct lack lack of kite man so I hope we get to see more of him, and I'm really interested to see how they handle the uh, Harley Quinn Poison Ivy romance because it was very much more of a sisterhood, best friend deal in the first season. So, how they transition that is going to be really interesting. But that is it for this week's weekly review. Uh, tune in next week for episode two. And uh, for now, we're going to roll on into this week's comics callback. <laughs> Welcome back to this week's Comics Callback. This is the segment of our show where each week I talk about five comics that you should go back and read. Whether it's on Comixology, the DC Universe app, or just going back to your shelf and dusting off your own copy of the book. Last week we took a look at the New 52. This week, category is Grant Morrison. So I'm going to be talking about five comics... uh, by Grant Morrison that I think you should go back and check out. All of these comics are available on pretty much any digital 
comics platform or if you have these comics you know they're hard copy books whether it's in uh, trade or hardcover dust them off check them out you should definitely take a look at these and for me I have always been a fan of Grant Morrison it was um it's been a long winding road when it comes to him as a writer. He's written all across the spectrum, Marvel, DC, uh, creator-owned books, the whole gamut. And he is probably one of the most prolific writers to ever grace comic books. He has a lot of ideas, a lot of big ideas that a lot of people um, are either into or are absolutely not into. But one thing that I think you can't argue is that he's written some of the most uh, meaningful, some of the most iconic comic book stories that you, that I've ever read. And today we're going to be covering five comics that I think you should go back and check out. So starting at number five, we have the Doom Patrol, specifically Doom Patrol crawling from the wreckage. Uh, if you haven't listened to our doom patrol episode go ahead and head back in the archives i did a full history of the doom patrol and a large piece of the doom patrol their whole history their success and really what informed a lot of the uh television show that's on the dc universe app was informed by this grant morrison run grant morrison took a property that was really on life support at the time revitalized it gave it a new fresh of paint new fresh coat of paint and completely I think recontextualized what the Doom Patrol stands for and where it stands in the hierarchy of DC Comics. It was strange, it was incredible, and it was unlike any comic that was going on at the time. So let's go ahead and hop into the synopsis here. They used to be called the world's strangest heroes, and then things got really strange. Rebus, Crazy Jane, and the rest of the Doom Patrol end up fighting a book that has become real, and a god who tortures butterflies. So if that doesn't tell you how freaking weird this <laughs> series is, um, I don't know what will. Uh, art by Doug Braithwaite and Richard Cates that really pair well with Grant Morrison's sensibilities as a writer. This book is, this volume, Crawling from the Wreckage, was the beginning of Grant Morrison's run that ended up becoming what I think is the most iconic run of Doom Patrol ever. Uh, and I think it's absolutely worth your time to go back and check out. So next up, we have JLA. This is written by Grant Morrison with art by Howard Porter and John Dell. Uh, JLA, specifically this first volume, Them, uh, really kicked off the golden age of the Justice League in the 90s. Uh, I would say if you ask anybody who grew up in the late 90s to early 2000s, they watched the Justice League animated series. And that show, whether you realize it or not, was directly influenced by this book. This was DC's crowning achievement in the 90s post Death, of, Death and Return of Superman. Uh, this run started in 1997 and was 
arguably a lot of people still believe is the best run that the Justice League has ever had. This had a ton of high concept stories because of course Grant Morrison has that's really all that Grant Morrison does. But it also had stories that really cut to the heart of these characters. Tower of Babel is one of the best Justice League stories of all time. And that really came in this book. That was one of the seminal arcs of this run. And it all started here in Volume 1 titled Them. So let's jump into the synopsis here. The action begins as the JLA reunites to stop the Hyper Clan, who have come to Earth posing as a new group of superheroes. But as their true nature comes to light, only the world's greatest superheroes can stop them. Standing side by side, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, Aquaman, The Flash, Green Lantern, and The Martian Manhunter take on alien posers and come to realize that Earth needs a proc protectorate made up of only the mightiest icons so if that lineup sounds familiar to you batman superman wonder woman aquaman the flash green lantern martian manhunter that's the justice league animated series lineup with the exception of aquaman being swapped out for hot girl but Regardless, this is one of my favorite team composites just in general, because you have classic um, Justice League characters at this point, Martian Manhunter and our Trinity, Batman, Superman, Wonder Woman, but you also have the 90s Aquaman, who is just hook-hand dick Aquaman, as well as two legacy versions of classic characters. The Flash at this point is Wally West, who is still unsure about being the Flash, even though I believe at this point in time he's at least 10 years into the role, um, at least in publication history, and also pairs him up with my favorite Green Lantern, the greatest Green Lantern of all time, Kyle Rayner. So you get perspectives from characters who have kind of grown up in a world of superheroes at the same time you've got perspective the perspective of superman post death and return of superman you have the perspective of martian manhunter who is slowly coming to the realization that he might not be the last survivor of crypto or of uh mars and you get all of these different perspectives all of these different worldviews on a team together and so all of the stories and the plots and the arcs that they go through always are gone through with that mindset of okay these characters are going to react to this a certain way and these characters are going to completely disagree with them and it makes for one of the most enjoyable runs on justice league that i've ever read so it's definitely something that if you love these characters and you love the dc universe you should absolutely go back and read next up we have a comic that i don't think a whole lot of people know about and that is an absolute crime because this is one of grant morrison's greatest stories Ever. And it's also the first collaboration that he had with one of the artists that I think is most associated with him, and that's Frank Quitely. I'm talking, of course, about Flex Mentallo, Man of Muscle Mystery. We're going to jump into the synopsis first, and then I'll tell you about the book. Once he was Hero of the Beach and of the Doom Patrol. 
Now, Flex Mentallo, the man of muscle mystery, returns to investigate the sinister dealings of his former comrade, The Fact, and a mysterious rock star whose connection to Flex may hold the key to saving them both. So Flex Mentallo is one of the most unique comic book characters that I've ever read. And Flex Mentallo is a very deep, deep cut. Next to no people know about him unless you are a, like, obsessed comic book fan like I am. And even then, Flex Mentallo is still a deep cut. I honestly didn't know about him until probably, I mean, probably like 2014, 2015, when the first big, like, collection of this book came out. Um, and what this book does so well is it takes a character who is already ridiculous and puts him into a world that is just like our own. And at the time, in 1996, that meant that he was put into a world where comic book characters were becoming something of a cliché and something of a... I would say, a niche crowd. At that point, comic books were dealing with the big comic book crash of the 90s, and they were also dealing with this cynicism that comics had gained over the course of the 80s, especially the mid to late 80s, with books like Watchmen, Dark Knight Returns, and books of that variety that really looked to deconstruct the superhero genre and changed the face of comic books Forever, We are still here in 2020 dealing with the aftershocks of how the industry changed in the late 80s. And this book, which, ha which took place and, I mean, was uh, released just a decade later, is still topical to today because it takes a look at that cynicism, at that dark um, deconstruction of comics and kind of questions it before anyone else was really questioning it. Nowadays, we see a lot of divided opinion on that uh, treatment of comics, especially when it comes to a lot of people who are coming to comics because of like the Marvel movies or more lighter uh, comic book fare, whether they want to see something like that's chock full of humor and fun or they want to see something that's dark gritty and grounded that conversation has been raging for decades at this point and this was one of the few books in my personal opinion that really sat down and deconstructed that argument so again it sounds very high concept it sounds very weird but it's also uh wraps this up in a great uh detective noir style mystery it's just such a fun time. It's an incredible book that really makes you think and is one of my favorite comic books of all time. So that is why it has to be on this list and you should definitely go check it out. Next up, we have probably, I would say, Grant Morrison's most iconic Marvel book, and that is New X-Men. Uh, again, with uh, collaborator Frank Quitely, this was the first Grant Morrison book that I ever read. Uh, this starts off, the run started in 2001, and this specific arc, if you want to go back and read it on Comixology, starts with issue number 114. So, I know that sounds weird. You know, the first issue of a story starting off in issue 114. But it's kind of the way that comics have been for a really long time, up until probably around, uh, like, 2007, 2008, when, 
you know, renumbering became a huge fad. And this book really was what put Grant Morrison on my radar. This came out around the same time as the initial uh, X-Men movie that really kind of kicked off the whole superhero craze in cinema. And for me, this is probably, I'd have to... I'd have to really sit down and think about it. But if it's not my favorite X-Men run, it's definitely up there. Because this really changed for me what I knew about the X-Men. Uh, coming into this, you know, in 2001, I was still, you know, I was still a youngin'. And I really, the only basis that I had going into this book was the animated series, which I love and hold near and dear to my heart, as well as the movie, which was vastly different from the X-Men cartoon. This comic blended both in a way that I never could have expected and is one of the best reads and most, I would say, coherent reads of Grant Morrison's if you aren't a fan of his writing style. His writing style can get very technical, very in the weeds, and very um, high concept. And this one takes all of his sensibilities, all of his high concept storytelling sensibilities, and tries to make it as mainstream as possible. This is Grant Morrison probably... I guess you could argue between this and JLA, probably Grant Morrison's most mainstream title. And it's one that I absolutely think that, especially if you're an X-Men fan, you owe yourself to read. So let's dive into the synopsis here. 16 million mutants dead. And that's just the beginning. The destruction of Genosha is just the beginning of a new era for the X-Men. So I, again, it starts off with the, uh, with the Genosha massacre. 16 million mutants are killed in the opening pages, of, in the opening panels of this book. And it's like, what, where do you go from there? It's a great book that also brought in some of the... I would say um, some of the most, uh, I guess, iconic views of these characters that are uh, kind of taken now. This was really the book that upped Emma Frost's stock as an anti-hero slash full-on hero. Um with a question mark, obviously, because up until this point, Emma Frost had really been known as a villain. And even in books like uh, Generation X, she still had this kind of conniving, like evil uh, under or uh, subtext in everything that she did. But here she really steps into this weird um, space where she is not only looked at as a leader in this current um in this current phase of the X-Men, but also as a romantic partner. This was also the arc where the love triangle formed between Jean Grey, Scott Summers, and Emma Frost. And um, reading through that whole uh, process of, like, the affair, uh, Jean dying again, you know, the, uh, the white room, uh, Scott eventually being 
I guess technically psychically pushed into the arms of Emma Frost. It's so interesting and really breathes new life into characters who have been around since the 60s. This was also the book that really put a spotlight on how terrible of a person Charles Xavier can be. And it's one of the most comprehensive looks at the X-Men that I have ever read. Um, and I would put it absolutely right up there with Jonathan Hickman's whole just reboot of the X-Men in that it really recontextualized everything that you thought you knew about the X-Men and brought up secrets um, and made revelations that you never could have thought possible with these characters. So again, this was the first uh, introduction to Grant Morrison that I had. And for me, it's near and dear to my heart and it's one of my favorites, but it's not my favorite favorite that brings us to the final book on the list probably to the surprise of no one which is all star superman uh written by grant morrison art once again by frank quietly frank quietly is probably the most uh often collaborator with grant morrison and rightfully so because the two of them work absolute magic together uh, this is the definitive Superman story. Anytime that I've met someone who either doesn't really know much about Superman or thinks Superman is boring or thinks you can't tell an interesting story with Superman, I hand them this book and every single time I have changed their minds. And I say I have changed their minds. This book has changed their minds because it is the seminal Superman story. It is a perfect Superman story in every way. Um, you can fight me on that all you want. You will lose every time. But this is one of my favorite Superman stories and might arguably be one of the best. So let's dive into the synopsis here. The Underverse, ruled by Bizarros. The Time-Eating Chronovore. Jimmy Olsen, superhero. Nothing is impossible in All-Star Superman, except for the fact that Superman is dying. Now, with time running against him, the Man of Steel must tie up loose ends and make sure that he leaves the Earth better than he found it. So, that really, the synopsis says it all. Um, this is the story about the final days of Superman. This is the end point for Superman in 12 issues that absolutely take the best pieces of Superman and put them on display for you to read. Uh, this has Superman answering the unanswerable question. This has Superman getting closure on the death of Pa Kent. This has Superman facing up against an entire world of bizarros, including meeting Zibaro, which is a character unto himself that you really need to read to truly appreciate. And this book also has one of the most iconic Superman scenes ever. And it's a scene that um, I still get choked, choked up about whenever I talk about it. And that is, of course, the scene where Superman um, stops a girl from committing suicide. Um, it is it so perfectly pinpoints on the core of Superman's character 
Um, you've you, even if you've never read this book, you've seen these panels where there is a goth girl on top of a building and she's about to jump off, and Superman saves her. Um, not by you know waiting until she jumps off and catching her, not by you know restraining her so she can't uh, jump off the building. It's by talking to her. And by being that symbol of hope and that symbol of belief that there is a brighter tomorrow and that it is possible that things will get better. It's one of the best Superman scenes of all time. It's a scene that um, I think you can stack up against any other iconic Superman scene and that can be your definitive version of Superman. Um, This Superman story also deals with the idea of death, the idea of mortality. Superman is dying. It is said in the very, and I don't think that's a spoiler because they say it in the very first issue, but Superman is dying. He has to deal with the fact that this being who we all kind of assumed would live forever um, has to face his own mortality. And what does that mean to Superman? But more importantly, what does that mean to Clark Kent? You get to see how he interacts with his supporting cast in his final days. You get to see the um, trials, the great feats of Superman that covers really the modern interpretation of Superman all the way back to his Golden Age roots. This is the definitive, comprehensive look that Superman needs and has had and will stand the test of time when it comes to great Superman stories and just great comic book stories. And that is why, for me, it's the greatest Grant Morrison comic that he's ever written. Um, Everyone has their favorites. Everyone has the ones that really stand out to them. Um, It pained me not to have the uh, Grant Morrison Batman run on here because that is also an iconic uh, Grant Morrison run. I had to keep this down to five, but for me, you can stack any of them up, and All-Star Superman really is the best of the best. So to recap, we have... Doom Patrol, Volume 1, Crawling from the Wreckage. JLA, Volume 1, Them. Flex Mentalo, Man of Muscle Mystery. New X-Men, Volume 1, E is for Extinction. That starts in issue 114. And All-Star Superman. This is... um, This is something just to kind of get you to start reading... Grant Morrison. If you've never read a Grant Morrison book, um, first of all, I am super excited for you. But second of all, this is really what this segment is going to kind of be um, going forward for the time being. I want people to spend this time, whether they are uh, forced to sit at home or whether they are just kind of looking for something to pass the time, you know, to pick up comics, stay You know, we've seen it all over Twitter. Hashtag stay home and read comics. Um, And I'm really excited about the prospect of continuing to do this every single week. And through this, I get to talk about stuff that um, either I haven't been able to talk about or doesn't fill up enough time for an entire episode of Geek Explained. So I'm really excited about this. um, And I would love to know, what do you think next week's category should be? Last week, we covered the new 50. Got a lot of great feedback from that. Um, Had a couple people who told me that they had never even 
they didn't even know that Aquaman New 52 was worth reading. So I'm really excited about this segment. Um, Grant Morrison is obviously a huge category, um, and I'm excited to see what next week's category is. You can feel free to suggest categories for this segment. I would love to get those recommendations, those suggestions, um, those requests, and you can send them either through social media at Pod. that's at P-O-D on Twitter and Instagram. Feel free to tweet at me, give us a follow as well on both of those. Uh, and you can also submit your requests through email, because I'm an old man, I still read emails to geeksplained at gmail.com. So last week we covered New 52, this week we covered Grant Morrison, and next week I cannot wait to see what we cover. And that is going to bring us to the wrap-up for this week. Would love to know you as my listeners' thoughts on the stuff that we talked about this week. Um, Final Fantasy is a huge, huge franchise. Lots of people have lots of opinions about it. And I would love to know, what's your favorite Final Fantasy game? Are you excited about Final Fantasy VII? Um, it really, uh, it really is something that I've been waiting on for a long time, and it is definitely something that was sorely needed, um, in this age of, uh, quarantine and social distancing and self-isolation and all that stuff. So I'm really excited to play it. Cannot wait. I might, we'll see, um, if I do like a little review on it. I did a, um, a, uh, wildcard weekly review on the demo which I absolutely loved. And if the game is anywhere near as good as that, I'm really excited to talk about it. Um, and I probably will on next week's episode. Um, feel free to also reach out to me on what comics you would like me to uh, give a comics callback to in uh, future episodes. I love this concept for a segment, and I'm really excited that we get to do it. Um, talking about Grant Morrison's works is always going to bring a smile to my face, and I'm excited to do other categories in the coming weeks. Also, are you loving Harley Quinn as much as I am? I want to know. I love Harley Quinn, and I'm really excited to uh, watch the next episode. But if you, overall, if you liked this episode, if you like what you heard, feel free to give us a rating and review, especially on iTunes. You give us a five-star review. I will read your review on this podcast. Um, and overall, just getting the ratings and reviews really helps us kind of get into the orbit of listeners just like you. So, it would help us out, and I really appreciate it. So that is going to do it for this week. Um, tune in next week for episode 104 as we continue on into probably the strangest year. Um, this Probably the strangest start of a decade that I've ever had. So um, I will continue to put out podcast episodes. It's a strange time. Um just giving you kind of an update on my life. Um, we're still um, under sort of lockdown here in uh, Los Angeles. It's weirder and it's continuing to be weird every day. Um, the new normal that we've kind of settled into is I have to keep reminding myself it's not normal um, because there's, uh, there's a lot of uncertainty out in the world. So um, the idea that I get to sit down uh, once a week and kind of just gush 
about uh, stuff that I'm passionate about is really um, exciting for me and it helps me kind of get through this. So if I'm able to do that, whether it's, you know, for 30 minutes, an hour, two hours for you guys, then I will have done my job. So um, tune in next week, same geek time, same geek channel. But for now, for Geek Explain, this is Eric Azana. Thank you very much for listening, and we will see you next time. Thank you.